Good evening. My name is Ryan Scherzinger, Senior Outreach Associate for APA here in D.C. Welcome to Tuesdays at APA. Uh, it's an after-work lecture series we hold one Tuesday a month. Tonight I'm pleased to introduce our speaker, uh, Garrett Knapp, is a professor of Urban Studies and Planning, Executive Director of the National Center for Smart Growth Research and Education, and Associate Dean for Research and Creative Activity at the University of Maryland. Knapp's research interests include housing markets and policy, the economics and politics of land use planning, the efficacy of economic development instruments, and the impacts of environmental policy. On these subjects, Knapp has published over 100 journal articles and seven books. He's received several awards, including the Outstanding Planner Award from the Maryland Chapter of the American Planning Association. Uh, Knapp also serves on the Maryland State Smart Growth Subcabinet and Sustainable Growth Commission. Uh, and tonight, Garrett will discuss his research on the Purple Line in suburban Maryland. Uh, so before we start, I'd like to ask you, please hold all your questions until the end of the presentation. We'll build in plenty of time for those questions at the end. Uh, so now, if you could please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, Garrett Knapp. Thanks, everyone, for coming, and thanks for that lovely introduction. Um, one of the things about that introduction, uh, it, it makes clear that we've, we've, we've focused at the Center for Smart Growth a lot of our work north. So we've been working a lot on state-level stuff in Maryland. Uh, and we're deeply engaged in the Baltimore Opportunity Collaborative. So it's, it's, it's great to get down here and see some familiar faces. My first PhD student, Allison Simon, is in the audience. I mean, who would have guessed? Uh, so th it's great to see uh, some, some folks that I know from the D.C. area. And uh, we are going to try to make a little bit more effort to, to look south uh, as well as look north. Um, one of the reasons for doing so is because we think we have a lot of data resources that really can be applied down here, uh, and that's part of what my message here is today. Um, it's a bit of an overstatement to say I'm going to present a, a bunch of our research around the Purple Line co uh, Coalition, the Purple Line Corridor, because we're just getting started. Uh, as I'll explain to you in a moment, we are, are establishing a corridor coalition, uh, which is focused on the Purple Line, uh, and it just got started. Right? And what I'm going to do is show you uh, a bit of what our agenda is, uh, and some very preliminary stuff in terms of what we'll be able to, to put together. Uh, and to begin giving credit where credit is due, uh, all the hard work has been done by uh, folks in the back, uh, Tigmai and, and Margaret Doyle. Um, Kim Ross is in the front here, and she is going to be leading our efforts on the Purple Line Coalition. And I owe everything, of course, to the Maryland Department of Planning. Uh, who, who I've ripped off the, their data uh, for many years, and it's really, uh, uh, to be honest, it's really been the, the uh, under sort of foundation behind much of what we've done at the National Center for Smart Growth. So, National Center for Smart Growth, hopefully you've heard of us. Uh, we've been around now for a decade. Uh, I answered to four deans at the University of Maryland, agriculture, um, get this right, architecture, public policy, and engineering. The idea, of course, being is that smart growth is a multidisciplinary endeavor, and you need to have all these folks involved. Uh, the good thing for me is if I don't like what one dean tells me, I've got three other deans that I can go to. And so it actually works out. Most people groan when I say that, but it actually works out pretty well. Uh, we have five affiliated centers. So one way that we've grown is to, have to do hostile takeovers. Um, so we took over the Environmental Finance Center, which does exactly what the name suggests. It helps people figure out how to pay for environmental finance. They're particularly heavily involved in stormwater uh, utility creation at the moment. Uh, the Transportation Policy Research Group does transportation modeling for the most part. Uh, much of, of the modeling work that we do at the center has been funded by the State Highway Administration, and we have a transportation model that covers not only the whole state of Maryland, includes all the Baltimore region, all the Washington region, 
uh, includes all the way from, from Wilmington down to Virginia Beach. So you know, this is, again, much of the data foundation that I'm, I'm able to bring. The Center for the Use of Sustainable Practice is the organization that was the administrative home of the Solar Decathlon, which is the international uh, champion. And I think we have one representative from our architecture school. There's Renit there. Uh, so we, we like to take credit for that when we can. Uh, the Housing Strategies Group is a recently formed group uh, led by Casey Dawkins, who does housing research. And the, the lead, latest edition is the Planning and Design Center, uh, led by Uri Avon, who's a longtime practitioner. So uh, this is our, our portfolio, if you will, and we are now you know, turning our attention south to look at the Purple Line. All right, so the Purple Line Coalition, uh, established in June. Uh, actually, this is the opening event, so welcome, <laughs> right? Uh, and you all can be honorary members of the Purple Line uh, Coalition uh, launching. So, you know, and, and everything I'm putting up really is tentative, right? So here's a, the, the mission statement that we wrote as we were writing the proposal to get this funded. Uh, I still think it makes some sense, right? But our coalition is to organize, you know, engage organizations active in the corridor, uh, to facilitate collaboration and integration and conduct and disseminate research. It's that last part that we're pretty good at. Right? The other stuff, we'll see how that goes. Uh, we have a lot of experience with coalitions. Well, we have some experience with other coalitions, and it's gone pretty well. Uh, it's been interesting to combine university research shops with advocacy organizations and state government agencies. Uh, you can imagine that there's a lot of synergies and a lot of benefits from that, and you can imagine occasionally there's some friction there. Right? But uh, we think we can pull it off. And the objective, of course, is to achieve maximum economic, social, environmental benefits to the residents and business of the quarter. We want to make the quarter work. Okay? So current partners... Uh, as I was seeking funding for this, I asked for people to provide me with letters of support, uh, and these organizations have provided letters of support. Our latest edition, uh, actually in Langley Park, is, is headed by a, a colleague of mine at the University of Maryland, and of course he was the toughest to get uh, to, to sign on to this thing. Uh, we've got, I think, a, a good group of folks. You know What it means to be a member of the coalition, we haven't quite figured out. Uh, whether we're going to charge dues or not, we haven't quite figured out. Uh, if people are willing, we'll probably take it. Um, but essentially, it's a voluntary association of folks that's trying to get things done. There's lots of you know, examples. In the past, uh, there was this uh, group that formed almost immediately, and, and it worked very effectively to try to get transportation funding, bill passed, uh, other examples of coalitions. Uh, but we're trying, to, we're trying to work closely with other folks to get things done. And our job, our primary job, is really to organize and to disseminate information. So uh, I was inspired to do this uh, because I was working with some folks at the Urban Institute, and we were evaluating the performance of some of these uh, sustainable communities grants that HUD gives out. Right, Baltimore got one of these. Washington tried to get one of these twice, I think, uh, but was unsuccessful. Uh, Baltimore, fortunately, was successful the second time. And there are many other metropolitan areas around the country, as you know, uh, that got this kind of money. And so I was working with colleagues at the Urban Institute, and we were examining the uh, performance of the Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, grant and uh, came across as quarters of opportunity. Their entire effort in Minneapolis-St. Paul is really quarter, transit quarter based. So the whole effort uh, was not to really do a, a, a metropolitan plan writ large, but to really focus on their quarters of opportunity, the quarters of opportunity being defined by their transit lines. And so they've really done a lot of very interesting work uh, around the development of their transit lines, similarly in Denver and similarly in Seattle. So there, I think there are other parts of the country that have bought into this quarter notion, I think, in a bigger way than we have down here. Uh, when I mean down here, I mean both in Washington and in Baltimore. Uh, but I think there's really quite a lot of evidence that thinking at the quarter level makes some sense. 
uh, and that you can get the transit system, if you will, to perform better if you think quarter-wide than if you think uh, purely on a, on a TOD basis. So why do we need this? So what's the logic here? Well, the first is a pretty general statement that says, you know, it makes sense to, to plan at the regional level, uh, at a comprehensive level. I think that makes sense as a general statement. But it's really the second point that, that I use to give this somewhat provocative statement that maybe got you in the room, is that why TOD is not enough. Uh, if you read JAPA, uh, you know that the latest issue had an article in it, something like TOD without the T or something like that. Is that right? Anybody, anybody know? Um, and the point that the author was trying to make is that much of the performance of TODs has less to do with the T than with the OD, right? that it has to do with the, the type of use and the density of use and the mixture of use and all the things that we care about. Um, but whether there was a transit line that went through it or not really didn't seem to matter that much. At least that's my sort of short version of, of what this piece said. Um, but... If you're going to talk about transit-oriented development and you're going to talk about what's the point of, of transit, well, transit gets you from point A to point B to point C and point D and so forth. Okay? And so if you're purely focused on transit-oriented development alone, I think you're missing you know, a big piece of what transit-oriented development is about, and that is connecting nodes uh, or the beads on the string, if you will. And so thinking about it at that scale, um, I think, makes a lot of sense. I'm trained as an economist, so I think in terms of economies of scale and economies of scope, right, TODs can be big, uh, they can hold a lot of people, they can be dense, they can be diverse and so forth, uh, but they can't be as big as corridors. Right? Some of the work that we've been doing at the Center for Smart Growth has been identifying economic centers, right? and I'll talk more about this later on, but the centers we define as being areas of really extremely high employment densities. Some of them are transit nodes, some of them are not. Right? But the point is that the bigger are these nodes and the more diverse are these nodes, the greater the efficiencies, and if you'll pardon the term, the greater the agglomeration economies. Right? So when economists think about this, they think about, well, what the transit system does, it really links nodes together and makes the whole system work better because you have greater connectivity between different economic sectors and if these economic sectors are able to interact more effect effectively, uh, then you've got greater economies of scale, and you've got higher employment rates, and you've got higher wage rates and all that. And we can show that to be the case in the work we're doing in Baltimore. Uh, finally, the advocacy community is siloed. I don't mean to insult anyone here, but, we've, again, we've got a lot of uh, partners that we're working with. Some of them focus on housing. Some of them focus on workforce. Some of them focus on business development. A uh, few of them focus on all of them. Right? That makes sense because they want to specialize in a particular avenue. Um, but the idea of a quarter, once again, is that you need all these things integrated. And again, if you're familiar with this whole HUD thing, uh, you couldn't get a HUD grant unless you had all the partners on board. And the notion being that you need to integrate and you need to activate all these partners. So the advocacy community really has a lot of advocacy organizations focused on a particular aspect. Uh, this is a way to bring them together around the quarter. Uh, and the public sector is also a bit siloed. Uh, one of the challenges of the Purple Line is it goes from Montgomery County to Prince George County. Uh, and they are both part of, I'm going to get this right, MNCPPC. Get that right, Sam? All right. But um, most people, I think, would admit that MNCPPC is not quite functioned the way it was originally designed. Uh, that Montgomery County and Prince George County certainly collaborate, but, but it, they're two separate entities, uh, and there are some divisions. Right, so you've got some geographic divisions, awfully. You've got, you got you know, municipalities all along the way. And the operator of the Purple Line and the instigator behind the Purple Line is MTA. 
right, the Maryland Transit Administration. Their function is to build transit and operate transit. They're not a housing organization. They're not a land use organization. They're not a workforce development organization. They care about all those things, right, but that's really not in their mission. All right, so we have these silos, if you will, and again, part of the function of the, the Purple Line Coalition, at least this is what I sold them when I was seeking the funding, uh, that we can integrate all these things. At least we're going to give it a try. So um, what can we learn from other places? So first of all, uh, there was a report, fortunately for me, uh, recently from Denver, uh, a report by Reconnecting America and Mile High Connects that, that looked at the performance of one of the lines in Denver uh, both before and after. Right? How did this line in Denver do? So what are, the, what are some of the things they looked at? Well, they looked at a number of things, many of the things I talked about earlier. Uh, and I'm not going to go into details of the report, but, but here is from the executive summary is basically what they found. Right? So job opportunities are primarily in office-based and professional industries. Job growth occurred mostly in higher income careers. But large increases in healthcare jobs suggest more middle-income job opportunities. Growth in middle-skill industries remains stagnant or decreased. Few work-supportive services or affordable housing units have been built along the line. Transit does seem to influence employers' decisions, but it's not a dominant force. And this last mile connectivity from the southeast line to the workplaces are a major barrier to taking transit. So again, this is uh, research they did after the line was in place. Uh, and so, you know, looking back, they wish they could have done some of this, uh, addressed this in some way. The Minneapolis example, for example, also is uh, focused around corridors because the first line they built, uh, they were also somewhat disappointed in the performance of that corridor uh, in many of these similar kind of measures. So they, they were determined uh, not to let this happen in the next investment uh, in a transit corridor. So here are some insights that we can get from other folks that gives us some clues about what we might want to look at uh, as we start to, to uh, build uh, and operate the purple line. So uh, a couple of maps from that report. So uh, this must be impossible to see from way back there, I'm guessing, uh, even though this is relatively big. So this is the distribution of subsidized housing and employment in the Denver region. So affordable housing is in green here, and you can see the green dots spread all over the place. Uh, you can see some dots over here not really connected to the transit line. And here's the employment density. And so the question is, of course, well, are we connecting the green dots to the employment densities? And to some extent, certainly, uh, there has been some of that, but not as much as they had hoped, uh, which led to one of their conclusions. So, and this map here shows the distribution of regional jobs requiring less than a college degree. And so the dark green is where the jobs requiring less than a college degree is 80% or more. Uh, and you can see that much of that is up here uh, in the northeast yeah, northeast corridor, right, which is not where the transit system is going. Now, fortunately, we have the capacity to do all these kinds of maps uh, also in the Purple Line corridor. So here are some of the things uh, that we want to look at as we get going. Um, here's a map of the central corridor in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, one of the things that they tried to do was segment the corridor into segments that made some sense, right, in uniform sense. So the downtown area of Minneapolis, the university and its environs, Midway West, they call it, Midway Central, East, and downtown St. Paul, and then segments all along the way that make sense to think about them as, as separate markets. So they define these markets somewhat as market strength being medium in this case, low here, low here, high over Minneapolis, St. Paul. So again, the thinking here along the corridor being uh, we can think about segments of the corridor, identify them as market niches, and begin to think about them individually as market niches. Again, notice, not as TODs per se, 
right? but as sets of TODs, if you will, sets of nodes along a string, uh, along the corridor. Uh, here's a map of the system, again, in Minneapolis-St. Paul that shows uh, many of the employment areas. Uh, these numbers are employment numbers, uh, and you can see whether or not the transit system connects up to the uh, employment densities. This is the kind of analysis, these employment densities, I'm not showing you today, but we have, again, for the whole Baltimore or Washington region, and we've done a lot of looking at where the jobs, what kind of jobs, which jobs, which centers are growing, which centers are not growing. Um, so we have the capacity to do that as well. All right, so what about the purple line? So what I'm going to do is show you a lot of maps, again, that, that uh, my student staff uh, helped prepare for me. Uh, the thing that I'm most proud of is that we were able to throw this together in about two or three days. Okay, and so what I'm hoping this is going to do is whet your appetite a bit. I'm not going to show you and come up with any stunning conclusions in terms of what's going on here. All right, remember, the purple line was formed about 10 minutes ago, all right, right here uh, as you're watching. All right, but hopefully you will look at some of these maps. Maybe it'll, it'll uh, trick, tri uh, trip your curiosity uh, and make me have a conversation about what some of these might mean and some future analysis that we might want to do. All right, so um, here's the purple line in context. Again, lots of different maps. One of the things that I look at this and sort of scratch my head and find interesting is, you know, what's interesting is the density of, of rail transit here in suburban Maryland is really quite higher right, than it is on, on the Virginia side. Um, and it extends, obviously, all the way up to Baltimore. Um, and if you put the line, the purple line, we know that the purple line quarter is the first, you know, circumferential uh, link on the transit system. But what does that mean? And what, what will that create? Uh, some work that we have been doing, actually a PhD student at the University of Maryland has been doing, is, is trying to come up with measures of connectivity, of transit connectivity. Right? And the way he computes this is by looking at levels of service, by looking at connectivity, that is intermodal connectivity, and the density of activity within the region. Right? So he's able to commute, compute this for every link on the, every node in the network, right? every transit node in the network. And we've got all the bus systems, and we've got all the rail, and we've got the light rail and the metro system. And so this, this is, these are the measures of, uh, of connectivity uh, before the purple line was put in place. And you can see that's pretty strong in D.C., as we would expect. Uh, and Virginia, uh, and Baltimore, uh, also very high measures of connectivity. Here it is after the purple line, and of course you really can't see when you go before and after, so we make the difference. And one of the very interesting things about this is that, according to this index, you know, we get some changes in connectivity way up here. Now, why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because the level of connectivity out here is really low to begin with, and so the base is low. Remember, this is percent change in connectivity. But you can imagine, right, Chuck, that if you get on the train, right, and you're able to bust over here and get over here uh, from Frederick, right, instead of going all the way into D.C. and going back out, that suddenly, you know, you have more connectivity here. Right? And these kinds of connectivity measures suggest that the benefits of the purple line really are system-wide, right? that the, the impacts on connectivity, hence the impacts on activity and the impacts on property values, for example, are likely to, to go throughout the system. And so the benefits of purple line cannot be looked at purely within the purple line corridor. Again, one reason not to focus on TOD. All right. When I saw that, I go, what? No one's going to believe this. Right? So I said, well, maybe this is all the percentage change stuff, and let's compute it only an absolute change. Uh, and when he did that, 
uh, we get something that looks like this. It says the connectivity is really high, uh, increases in Washington and in Baltimore. And you're going, well, that's kind of weird. How can you draw a purple line and have that kind of impact? And the reason is because you have so much interconnectivity in the transit system here and so much density there to begin with that there are benefits of the purple line way down here and way up there. So again, we've got some measures that we can use to try to estimate the effects of the purple line, not only in the corridor, but system-wide. Right? And there are going to be system-wide benefits uh, throughout the transit system in the Baltimore-Washington region. Skip that one. All right, so here's another view. As we started thinking about um, what does this... So you know, we, we assign uh, the task of making maps. So are we going to make some maps? What do we draw? So the first thing we thought about, well, let's draw this thing here. And because of some of the work that, that Tim Welch has been doing on connectivity, he said, well, that doesn't make sense. Let's look wider. Uh, and then we said, well, then what region do we draw? Uh, and then the intern who's working for us said, well, you don't want to look at this corridor. I live in Annapolis, and I anticipate taking the purple line. All right, so drawing the lines pretty wide in terms of where the impacts are will be good to have. Uh, we're waiting to get from MTA some estimates of ridership. Uh, that'll tell us from you know wherever in the, in the region people are going to ride the thing. Um, but again, the point I want to make is these impacts of something like this are much wider uh, than the corridor itself, and certainly much wider than any particular uh, station on the line. All right, we tried thinking through um, these segments. Again, this is simply a first cut. We haven't even debated this among ourselves very much. Uh, but one can imagine that you can separate the purple line into these different quarters. And I would imagine the developers and the realtors will begin to think about this already in terms of well, what does the market over here in Bethesda Chase, Bethesda Chevy Chase look like in Silver Spring and the University Boulevard, University of Maryland, and Riverdale. Right, this is somewhat arbitrary, uh, I'll grant you. Uh, but some thinking about how this does segment out, where do we draw lines between different segments of the corridor, uh, will be a useful exercise. And I think some of the slides I'm going to show you in a moment uh, will help you think that through. I'm going to skip this one, too, because I will come back to it. All right, so minority population share. Right? One of the interesting things about the Purple Line is that it's going through a very diverse uh, part of the state of Maryland uh, or the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Green, the darker the green, the higher the, pop the minority share. You can see that there's a big difference. Right? This is not surprising to anyone, anyone who lives in the region uh, between the uh, characteristics, the demographics, uh, in Bethesda versus the demographics in New Carrollton, right, or in Langley Park or in other parts of the region. So a pretty big difference here in terms of demographic composition from one end of the line to the other. Um, if we break that into minority groups, if we look at black or African American, we can see most of that is uh, on the far east as well as south of us in, in D.C., and if we look at Hispanic community, it tends to be mostly in the middle, right, which leaves the white community, which is mostly out here. Right? So it's, again, very interesting to think of the line in these terms, uh, in terms of the different demographic groups that you encounter as you go across the Purple Line corridor. Anybody know where that is? University of Maryland. We look at this, God, this is an all-white area, and it's the lowest, the poorest, you know, uh, poorest spot on the map, what's going on there, and of course, that's the university. Right? So it does have the highest poverty rate, uh, students are poor, uh, we intentionally keep them that way, right? so they can do all our work for us, but you know, the University of Maryland being in on this, on this transit system is going to have a big influence, and this is why the University of Maryland cares about this, uh, and is funding our efforts. So the university, we have a new president, the university president is very much into seeing the university as a transformative agent, 
and how the University of Maryland can help shape its environment. And thinking about how the transportation, the Purple Line Corridor can do that is one of the reasons they bought into um, this effort. Unemployment rate, once again, students uh, tend to be highly unemployed, but you can see you know, how this distribution varies. It tends to be very east-west, once again, north-south. Right, some pretty stark differences that start to show up in many of these uh, statistical measures. And again, you see a big east-west division here. There's median income. Here's zoning. Of course, you've got a lot more industrial zoning uh, in Prince George County than we do in, in Montgomery County. Almost no industrial zoning in Montgomery County. Much more commercial, mixed use. All right, now we can look at property types. Again, these are very preliminary maps, um, but because we have the property view database, uh, we're able to identify apartments, commercial, industrial, hotel, motel, uh, all along the corridor. You can see, once again, the density, the clustering uh, in Montgomery County is much stronger, right? and we can compute different measures of clustering if we want to as we go, go on further. Uh, much more widely distributed here. And one thing you'll see in, in several of these slides as I go forward is you know, really a lack of commercial activity around here, largely because the university uh, owns so much land that the, the Purple Line Corridor is going to go through. Single family. It's a suburban transit system, right? It's a suburban corridor. So we see a lot of single family households. Some multifamily. Right. Once again, uh, some clustering of multifamily in Bethesda, Silver Spring, obviously. Um, much less of, of it over here. Right. So in terms of, once again, you see pretty big differences between the Prince George side and the Montgomery County side in terms of clustering of multifamily around the corridor. Nursing homes and subsidized home units. This is from the Maryland Department of Planning property view data. Right. So we identified the... Uh, the attribute that told us whether they were subsidized homes or not. Um, we are going to look at particularly a publicly provided low-income tax credit homes and so forth, so we'll look at that later on. Uh, but we can see the nursing homes uh, at some distance. We can see a few of them are on the, on the line, but a lot of them are not in the region. Uh, and the subsidized homes, uh, I don't know they really captured them all in here, to tell you the truth. The existing percent of commuters on transit, right, before Purple Line. This will make for a nice, interesting study before and after the Purple Line to see how the mode share changes over time. All right, employment centers. Uh, I talked earlier about our work that we have done that identifies 21 employment centers, 23 employment centers in the state of Maryland, which represent about 1% of the land mass in the state of Maryland, but about 40% of the jobs. Uh, we've been arguing that uh, Plan Maryland, which is you know, the state development plan in Maryland, needs to pay particular attention to these, right? because if we're worried about economic growth, uh, we're worried about jobs housing balance, uh, and worried about transit ridership, then focusing activity within these nodes, we, we've been arguing in Maryland, makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've done the analysis that shows exactly what the industrial composition of each of those nodes are, and we've done the analysis to see how much the transit ridership share is to those nodes versus everywhere else, 
and the transit ridership share of commutes to work much higher uh, for people who work at these nodes than anywhere else. So if you're interested in focusing and getting people to ride transit, what you really need to do, we've been arguing, uh, is put employment at the transit nodes, not so much the residential. Clearly you want some of both, right? but in terms of the marginal impact that we've been estimating using our travel model, uh, the impacts of putting employment at the nodes is really much stronger than in putting the housing at the nodes. Uh, further, what intrigues us about this is, you know, these are three big, sorry, four big employment centers uh, in the state of Maryland and obviously, therefore, in, in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And what the purple line does is link these in a way that they haven't been linked before. The Bethesda, North Bethesda um, economic center, as we've been calling it, is becoming, well, already is, the dominant economic center in the state of Maryland, right, eclipsing Baltimore, you know, quite some time ago. So if you think about economic development from a statewide perspective, thinking about this quarter is really critically important, and thinking about the connectivity of this quarter to the rest of the region is critically important. And what happens if we put two powerhouse centers, uh, Bethesda and North Bethesda, uh, within sort of walkable distance on a transit line? What are the economic agglomeration benefits that we can get from that? And how do we get that to spill over into these other two? This one also is a major economic powerhouse uh, in the state of Maryland. So some thinking about complementarities uh, of employment, economic development activities in the different corridors, and how the Purple Line will facilitate that uh, is work that we want to engage in. All right, just a quick look at what uh, a few of these centers look like in terms of their industrial composition. Uh, this is summarized into these uh, relatively small groups. All right, so a lot of office in Bethesda, less so in Tacoma Park, Tacoma Langley, more retail in terms of share. Uh, and New Carrollton, very little retail in terms of share, uh, and much more public employment. Right? So what happens when we link all of these, and are there some benefits that occur from this kind of linking of different industrial classifications uh, along a purple line corridor? All right. Uh, this is a very, this is from our uh, employment data, right? and you can't, I mean, we know what all these industry codes are. I'm not going to take the time to present them. Uh, once again, I think what strikes you from this, however, uh, is the difference in densities uh, of employment on the east side versus employment densities on the west side. And what are the implications for that in terms of economic development? Um, the other thing that we are planning to do soon is to identify all the small businesses along the corridor, uh, identify where we think that the potential is for um, for land price increases, so we can identify which of these small businesses are going to be threatened by, uh, perhaps subject to increases in rents and property values, and therefore uh, displaced. Same thing for, for affordable housing. Right, here's another view of this. Fewer categories. Once again, much more sort of concentration, uh, greater, concentra greater densities and concentration on the Montgomery County side uh, than on the Prince George side. So uh, here's what you came to hear, I think, right? What can be done to foster equitable development and prevent or mitigate the displacement of affordable housing uh, and small locally owned businesses? And we think a lot, right? And we have some ideas of what this might be. So we, from looking at these other places, right, that we are going to uh, look as models, so from Seattle, from Minneapolis, from Denver, and other places, uh, we looked at a few examples of, of what are some of the things that they've tried. So here's one example uh, in Seattle. Uh, the partnership with HUD 
creating three transit core action strategies, a regional equity network, and housing strategy and demonstration projects. Part of uh, the, the, the metropolitan-wide uh, HUD grant uh, operating in Seattle. So this is what we're trying to emulate. So in Seattle, also a development fund uh, supported by the City of Seattle's Office of Economic Development, offers affordable loans and technical assistance to small businesses and real estate developers in the, along, the, along the corridor. Further on economic development, a lot of joint development uh, in Portland. Um, in the airport area, creating tiff districts. Uh, we know that this can be done here. The state of Maryland just passed legislation uh, uh, increasing the ability to, to um, adopt, uh, implement tiff districts. There's some insights here in terms of what can be done. For the affordable housing front, uh, the Twin Cities, the quarters of opportunity, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, in corresponding with the land bank, uh, will end up to $14.3 million. It helps to have $14.3 million uh, when you're doing this work. We don't have that yet, but if anybody wants to leave a check as they leave the, uh, the room, we're happy to take that. Um, it's, the challenge for us is to try to emulate what's being done in these cities where they have lots of money to throw at these problems, and we don't yet have any. Right, so fundraising is one of the things that we're going to be focusing on. Uh, and once you've got money, you can begin to do some of these other things. Inclusionary zoning requirements, that doesn't take any money. Um, in Seattle, um, a housing levy, $65 yearly tax. And this is one way to come up with money. Transferable development rights, we know how those work. We have those in this region. So there's more tools that we can use to, uh, prevent or to protect affordable housing. A TOD fund in Denver, funding the creation and preservation of affordable housing units, uh, a number of organizations involved in this. Enterprise uh, is active in this part of the country as well. Um, so they're engaged in buying properties and creating or preserving affordable housing, 500 new jobs um, as of April. Twin Cities Ready for Rail Forgivable Loans. This is a transition uh, project or effort to try to uh, uh, mitigate losses of small businesses during the construction phase. St. Paul's U7 program, loans and grants for facade improvement and expansion funds, local philanthropy organizations, once again, loans and technical assistance. Portland, once again, business retention, taking care of business during construction, maintaining access, providing notice of construction work. I know MTA's got some of this already uh, in mind. Uh, work between TriMed and Portland State on business outreach program. One of the partners in our uh, effort is the Small Business Development Center at the University of Maryland. We plan to engage in some of this. So... Um, the Purple Line presents many interesting and new challenges. Right? It's the first uh, suburban uh, transit line in the region. It's circumferential. It's diverse. It's institutionally complex. Uh, we think there's a niche that we can fill uh, by bringing these organizations together and bringing the kind of information that we just touch, scratch the surface with some of these maps. Um, the coalition is intended to direct university, public, and private organizations to a public cause, which is making the Purple Line corridor work better. 
um, and we fully expect to break new ground and pioneer new approaches. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thanks very much, Garrett. Is there any uh, questions from the audience? Or ideas? Or ideas. Yeah, Sam. Um, you know, we're all into um, mixed-use development, retail, office, and residential. But you said something that was caught my interest. You said that we should focus not on housing around these stations, but around more of um, employment centers. But a lot of what you're talking about in, as far as solutions has to do with affordable housing. Yeah. How do you how 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 are you thinking about mixing that in? If what you said, I'm sure it's not an absolute every station. No, of course, right. But but um, also looking at the trends, you notice you said that most were most stations that you studied had had higher income jobs, office jobs. Um, how do you change that or? Um, how do you integrate the need for affordable housing and the, and the fact that people need to be near the station with what you said that we really should move towards more of a employment centers? Yeah. Well, I, I wish I knew the answer. Right. <laughs> this is something we're, we're going to look at a lot. Um, one of the things, again, we're trying to convince the Department of Business and Economic Development in Maryland is that they should have uh, incentive programs that focus on these centers, not just within the PFAs. Uh, as, they're, as they're looking at now. So I think there are incentive programs that we can use to try to get more employment near the centers. Now, the, I mean, that doesn't mean forsaking affordable housing by any means, right? But one of the things I haven't talked about, and it was in one of the maps, and I should have brought this out, it was showing the bus lines, right? Um, and when you do some of these connectivity measures that we're playing with now, you know, some of, the, some of the connectivity measures around some of the bus lines are as high, if not higher, than around the transit stations. Right. So it's not that it's wrong to do transit-oriented development or mixed-use development in transit stations, but I think to be blinded and focus purely on that and not think system-wide right, and think about where the affordable housing ought to go in a transportation system right, is some thinking that we need to do. Now, that doesn't mean I've got the answer that says, here's where you need to put all the housing and here's where you... I mean, the other thing that we've done is, again, some of our, our corridor work is we've looked at the, the commute sheds Right? So we have, a, let's say, the Bethesda uh, station, right? and we draw the commute sheds. Right? And you can imagine as you do that by modes, if you get a walk commute shed, it's very small, and you do a transit commute shed, it's bigger. You do automobile commute shed, it's huge. Right? So do you need to have all the housing, particularly right next to the center, or do you need the housing only in the commute shed, uh, particularly on a bus line that gets you there? I don't know the answer to that, right? but I think some thinking through of that might make a lot of sense. I wanted to ask if you've done any research into the um, expected changes in industry mix as a result of adding transit and promoting more job growth around the nodes. A lot of the existing um, retail space in particular and uh, businesses there are more of the lower rent retailers and presumably they'll be replaced by higher rent uh, retail and office uh, employers. Have you taken a look at that issue? Um, you know, we're just getting started, right? Right. So we we intend to, right? So um, I think that the, once again, the thing to look at is, is it clear that all the that the property value is going to drive out all the retail businesses at every station? It's probably not the case, right? So thinking about where those property value increases are likely to be 
more, the greatest and what kind of retail establishments are best suited in a high rent environment and what's in a low rent environment is, again, some thinking through, I think, that we need to do to make sure that we get the right incentives to get the right kind of employment in the right kind of places. So, I, once again, I don't know the answer to that, uh, but it's definitely on our agenda. I feel I'm going to be answering a lot with, well, we're going to look into that. Well, this one won't be because this may be oh, a good. question for the – I haven't been following this for a few months, but the last time I remembered, the Purple Line was not funded yet? Correct. So is that part of the coalition's mission to help with the process of getting it funded, or are you seeing yourself as on a separate track? Uh, we're not on a separate track. Uh, we're optimists, right? <laughs> so we think the Purple Line is, is going to occur. Maybe there's someone in the room who's got some insights on that. Uh, they think the transportation bill just passed in Maryland you know, adds a lot of momentum uh, for where we're going. And you know, the Purple Line advocacy organizations, maybe you represent one, uh, are... <laughs> Are on board, right? But we do want to distinguish ourselves. From, you know, we are not focused purely on getting the, the line built, right? We're, we're we're economists. We assume that's going to happen, right? and then we analyze <laughs> the impacts. You are optimists. <laughs> that uh, well, one of the things I know, the Silver Line had yep. a coalition that was specifically focused on dealing with getting it financed as far as construction goes. Right. And, and that became very, very important in getting people on board for the value capture techniques that were used for the Silver Line. Right. So I think there's some overlap there where when you're talking about the land use and the housing and getting people on board actually connects to financing the thing. Correct. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it, her uh, question was actually a perfect segue. My name is Hojan Garland, and I'm currently working in uh, MSCPPC, Prince George County side. Um, we just finished the uh, um, Purple Line TUD studies, um, four, uh, five station out of 11 stations we have. Mm -hmm. And I can see most of statement and most of data you've shown mm -hmm. is uh, along the line that we have also. Mm -hmm. Um, and as you said, that MNCPPC has a bi-county uh, um, uh, agency, mm -hmm. but it's true that Montgomery County versus Prince George County, we don't necessarily work together as a daily basis. Sure, um, I, didn't, I didn't put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but but so, so so I really appreciate that the the way that you've shown from the entire county, uh, entire corridor from the New Carrollton station to the Bethesda, it really reveals a lot of uh, unbalance or a lot of uh, uh, you know, uh, the missed distribution opportunities. So it, in that sense, I think it's really, really uh, um, great exercise to do. Um, related with her, her question, you know, especially it shows the impact. It's not just in Montgomery County or Prince George County. Because of the rider connect, uh, connect the ridership, it can impact lots of other uh, different counties. And while we're having a budget problem, uh, and while a lot of people think, oh, it's just Montgomery County or Prince George's County problem, this could be really utilized as a mechanism to pursue other counties saying that we do need a budget, you know, from even other counties, that it's not just two county matters, it's a state matters. So I think it will be a good vehicle to use. And a region matter, right, Yes, John? exactly. And I'm, I'm you know, welcome. To, I'm uh, willing to further coordinate with you. Absolutely, uh, great. Since we just finished the uh, Purple Antiquity studies in our county, so let's have a further So, I mean, we've just launched our website. We'll begin to put some of these maps up. We want to make sure these, these maps are clickable so that if you can go to the particular station, it goes to your planning work in the particular site. So I think that will be very helpful to try to integrate some of the work. Yeah. Yes, here. Did you have a question? I'm oh, sorry. First comment. 
St. Louis, the group that was called Citizens for Modern Transit, I think, was critical to help get their first light rail line built, and that's been the pattern throughout the country, mm-hmm. and to encourage development near the lines, and I got a long list of projects built near those lines from them just a few years after they opened. And so I think that role is critical. I've been a Maryland resident. I am a Maryland architect, but I've been in Virginia most of my recent career. And I'm very pleased to see a circumferential rail line proposed. 23 years ago, when they were planning the new Woodrow Wilson Bridge, a little group I was involved with in Alexandria, met with VDOT's head and said, please design this bridge to allow for future circumferential rail Mm. on it Mm -hmm. so you could get from what is now National Harbor over to the metro and keep going all the way around the Beltway so that, among other things, the horrible traffic jams you have near Rockville and Bethesda would be somehow better. Mm -hmm. And I still live in the Fairfax, Virginia side of the house, Your line is inside the Beltway. There's been a lot of controversy in Virginia for going across the river to Loudoun County, but it seems to me there's a potential to carry your route around Washington as a sort of inner Beltway that happens to be rail that links to the Virginia lines, too, and that that would help make the case for extensions to Andrews, Mm-hmm. where I started my professional career, okay. and National Arbor, and, oh, by the way, help me out if I still live in Virginia 20, 10 or 20 years from now. And I've been studying transit-oriented development nationally, but this, to me, is one city where circumferential rail in general makes a heck of a lot of sense, and very few cities have tried to do it. Okay. Thanks for your comments. Um, I don't want to go there because I've already stick my neck out assuming the purple line is going to get built. I, <laughs> I won't I argue that. stick my neck out for the whole... Um, as a Vir- Virginia resident of long standing, I've watched the impact of the I-66 and Orange Line corridor go from splintering communities hmm. and enormous resistance and resentment to a new... It took more than one whole generation to get past that, build new communities, get used to the fact that you can't get from here to there without finding a bridge, that kind of thing. uh, My question for you is, do you have ways of applying lessons learned from that experience so that it doesn't take a generation and a half to get over the fractiousness that is inevitable when you put through this kind of disruption through between your nodes? Well, um, we know that's a problem. We we know it happens already. and we hope not to. We hope to pick, come up to speed a little more quickly. I don't want to. I don't want to spend my. I don't want to wait for the next generation to get this done, right? Which is one of the reasons we're trying to build this coalition and get a diverse set of folks engaged. 
Uh, if you've got something particular you could share with me that, that would be in, uh, helpful to us to move a little more quickly, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, sort of wondering just broadly how much your um, sort of your agenda for your coalition is based upon an assessment of the planning that's already occurring, particularly the, some of the small area planning or the TOD planning that was already mentioned. I get this sense that you've sort of um, preliminarily identified some of these equity displacement issues related to housing as as problems and things that need to be focused on, and that's that sounds great. Um, I'm wondering, is your assessment of sort of what's what's happening, what's good, what's maybe lacking in some of the local planning related to the Purple Line, um, is also look whether you're thinking about looking at some issues related to employment, particularly some of the last mile questions. I think you identified those in in Denver. So I guess just broadly, to what degree is your coalition's work and your research going to be sort of looking at sort of what's what's good and what's bad in terms of or what's lacking, maybe, in terms of what the um, local and state plans have already d- done. Well, um, we know about that, right? And I, uh, perhaps I was remiss in not showing some of that. Um, but we, tr- you know, what we're trying to do at this point is identify a niche where we don't duplicate what other folks have done, right? So we know there's been good planning work done in just about every one of these these nodes, right? So our our intent clearly is not to duplicate that work, uh, but to try to tie that work together. Uh, like I said, you know, once we get up and running and we have the website, we can we want to be able to link to all these things and we can see what's what's being done there. But it is clearly our intent to look quarter wide. Uh, I think there's probably, you know, my assessment, and I don't, you know, don't have much basis for this, is that there's a lot of energy around affordable housing. There's less energy around workforce development and less energy around um, business displacement. You know, I don't know that that's the case, and certainly in particular sites, that's probably not true. Uh, but at least in terms of what I'm hearing and, and the people that, that have already sort of reached out to us, uh, it tends to be mostly the housing folks, right, and not the economic development folks and um, not the, the, the workforce development folks. So, the, you know, we will try to go where we're needed, right? And so I think, in my mind at least at this point, right, is less in the, in the micro-scale uh, planning around particular nodes, uh, and I wouldn't say less in the affordable housing, but I think it's the other parts that, that could use more help um, than the affordable housing agenda. Although affordable housing is probably the first issue we're going to take up, but because it's the easiest, frankly, because there's so much energy around it now. Uh, but again, some quarter-wide thinking about that, uh, and how that, I think, I still think some li- thinking through about how this all links up with the rest of the system, I think, makes a lot of sense that hasn't been done yet. Right, so where are the bus routes? Help me out, Ting. Are these all the bus routes here? These, right? Those are all the bus routes? Yeah. So you start thinking about the system, if, if you will, you know, in terms of the, the purple line as well as all the bus routes right, and where the connectivity is and where the opportunities are. Not that I have any answers yet. Um, but I suspect most of the planning work you're describing, right, is half mile around each of these stations. And so, you know, our we tend to we tend to, our our center really tends to focus at the larger scale than most you know planning departments, right? Which is again a niche that we think that we can fill that isn't stepping on other people's toes. So we do mega region stuff, we do statewide stuff. This is probably as small a scale as we're going to get. We're not going to get into the 
the corridor, I'm sorry, the very you know, TOD sort of parcel level kind of analysis. Yes, Sam. I guess that's what I'm struggling with. You know, we live in Riverdale, and, and we have a, a major station that's going to be there, and our community organizations are looking as to how they can affect change, mm-hmm. positive change. And it's not – housing always comes up. Right. And But you're also sitting right next to College Park, and you're also sitting right next to New Carrollton, and you recognize all that – what people are talking about can't happen at all three. There has to be a larger look, and the community has to look at a larger uh, spectrum than just their station. But I'm – and so – I'm trying to figure out then how then does a group, a community group that is location focused, mm-hmm. play into what you're thinking, or does it? Or you're pretty much in the policy realm, and I, we're going to have to rely on the planning department or economic development to really um, help us um, really parcel out some of this information because we you can you can just feel everybody's going down the singular, the community level, their single station, and, and not really understanding or really engaging in what's happening around them, and is there a real market? And, yeah. you know, people are tired of the pretty pictures and not the reality of what's going to make things happen, either yeah. financially or market-wise or what makes sense in relationship to everybody else. So I'm trying to figure out, is there a role within the coalition and what you might be looking at for these for these kinds of groups or not i'm I'm not sure yeah and to be honest i mean we've been debating this a a bit ourselves but i think the answer is yes i mean the there has to be two-way communication right i mean i think you know we're able to produce this kind of stuff really quickly right and for us to give it to you is is costless for us right so i think the sharing of this kind of region and quarter-wide information with you is is only the appropriate thing to do how we can use your information in terms of your agenda uh, and so try to re- relate this to our maps is something I have. I need to think through, right? So, and maybe as simply as it's us bringing you together. Although, I, again, I don't know what conversations you've had with other neighborhoods, right? Um, but if we are a coalition and we start to have a conversation about affordable housing or workforce development, and, and groups like yours are in the room, not just your particular, you know, stop, right? But the whole corridor, you know, maybe that's how we facilitate that kind of exchange. Yeah, Renee. I think this builds on the last question. Um, So I hear you talking about uh, affordable housing and workforce development, and I'm curious to think about where the place is for community identity and cultural assets um, and how how I'm thinking about the whole uh, line itself and the whole corridor, one can simultaneously also think about um, the specificity of kind of the, the cultural assets or the community identity that's already there and might um, be something really to build on and develop. Yeah, well, that's why you're in the room, right? Because this, this is your area of expertise. And clearly this is something I think we can uniquely do, right? That is, I mean, what, we don't really want to homogenize the whole thing. There are distinct cultures along this, right? And we want to recognize that and, and celebrate it. Right, as long as we make it work for ourselves, right? So part of that is identifying parts of this region which have particular cultural identities. But also, I mean, from the university's point of view, I have to say one of their interests is to define this really as a corridor, right? Whether it's the international corridor, whether it's the science corridor, 
You know, one of the things that gets bandied around at the University of Maryland is, well, you know, the research triangle, you know, is famous, you know, internationally. And if you think about the universities and the resources that we have in this region and you add that all up, we have as much assets as the research triangle, right? So thinking quarter-wide, I mean, you think about, you know, you go all the way from Bethesda to New Carrollton and you think about all the major institutions, right, that are along that corridor, right, and you sort of, sum that up and you talk about, well, what do we have in this quarter? You've really got a powerful economic engine here uh, that you need to, this is not so much cultural, but, but it is a... Well, I'm kind of curious from the uh, examples that you've been looking at, mm-hmm. um, what, if any of, what, if anything, and I'm sure they have done lots of things, um, people have done in other places because the gap between the time in which this will actually be built, mm-hmm. right, and the people who are living there, particularly if they feel disenfranchised or if they're from an area where they're concerned about losing their housing, may not engage. Um, and, and then they will be moving out of that area. So, you know, that's a really tricky kind of condition, and I'm really curious to know um, what was done well in Minneapolis and Denver or what was not done well um, because of that time sure. gap. and we are too. I know you are. <laughs> Margaret, you got anything to add to that? And I think a really good example is in Minneapolis because the area that they're looking at it actually goes along one avenue that connects St. Paul and Minneapolis, and it's made up of all of these different um, ethnic and historic neighborhoods. Um, and I think they've done a really good job involving the community and engaging in how they can create places and keep local businesses as part of the corridor. So I, hopefully we can do something like that too. I'm not sure about that. I'll have to keep looking. <laughs> our, our next event, right, our real coming out event, uh, we're going to bring people from Seattle and Denver and Minneapolis to talk about, you know, what they did well. And then we can ask questions of people who are actually, you know, a little more experienced than the you know, half an hour that I have uh, at doing this. So that, that will be our next event. How do we hear about that? Um, well, we don't have a listserv yet. And I, you know, we need to we need to produce one. I, I would say stay tuned to our website. Yeah, we we'll certainly announce it there. We're thinking the fall, October. Yeah, yeah please. Uh, yeah, I have a, I guess, a very naive question. Is there what I know? You said that each of these kind of the big employment centers that you highlighted, like Bethesda, Silver Spring. Prince George's and New Carrollton area. Is there evidence right now to suggest that there is a lot of connectivity between those areas? No. Um, okay, so I guess you're going at it as like there's untapped potential. We should connect these areas. There'll be different beneficial side effects that happen because of it. Because I, I keep, you know, it does seem more of a connection than it is like like the example you just talked about in Minneapolis where it's St. Paul and Minneapolis. Well, those are huge areas that people are traveling back and forth to all the time. So versus these are kind of separate places where maybe there isn't a lot of connection going on. Well, does somebody want to speak to that? I mean, again... I, I see that. I see. I know that the people are go from there. I'm just saying, from an economic perspective, what you're trying to promote about all these connections that are going to happen. If that, I guess, I, I'm not against this idea at all. I just am wondering. Oh. <laughs> you know, 
No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we don't have empirical evidence, right? Uh, but, you know, we're researchers. You know, this, and I'm going to teach a seminar next semester focused on this, and so I'll have, you know, poor students, right, to, 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 to focus on this. And, right? I mean, there's some of them in the room for, who, are, who, are now, who now make more money, I hope. Um, and, and, I mean, I don't know any way that we get that except to survey folks, right? And, it, you know, without the purple line there, it's a little hard to, to do that. Would you take the purple? But I, just, just speculating, right? I mean, you connect Bethesda and Silver Spring with a very convenient, you know, uh, light rail access. i got to believe that's going to be powerful, right? I mean, you've got two very powerful economic engines there. And then you connect it over to the university, right? Um, you know, someday we will be able to do the surveys and, and, and identify the economic connectivity. Right now, I'm just assuming and curious about where that's going to happen. But you know, if economic theory has any validity to it at all, I, I got to believe that there's going to be something going on there. Partly because I mean, we already know that in each of these nodes, right, some research that we've done suggests that you know, the, in these nodes, the wages are higher, the productivity is higher, the, the trip lengths are shorter, the transit share is higher. You know, agglomeration economies, to use the big you know, economics word, they occur. I mean, we know that, right? And if you connect, right, two, they're right next to each other and have more integration between the two, got to believe that there's going to be more of it, right? But at this point, it's a matter of speculation. You're right. Any more questions? One more. Sorry, and I know this is the end, so I'll make it short. But I think it's important to note that one of the reasons that we face such an affordable housing and um, displacement challenge here is because transit is um, in a short supply, and so that drives up the prices. And the more that we can support transit projects that will expand access to walkable communities around the region, that will have an impact here, and um, we won't face such challenges in the future. So I think it's just important for everyone to keep in the back of your mind that the more that we can support transit as a worthwhile investment for this region, um, the less and less we'll face these challenges. Okay. I mean, the, the way I think about this is, you know, the, the reason the value is going to increase is because of greater accessibility, right? Accessibility gets capitalized into land values, and if, as, as long as that happens, you're going to see increases in rent. I mean, there is an overall lack of supply of particular types of development. Um, I, I think personally that the Washington region spends, focuses a little too much on the physical form, right, and not the economic composition of what's, what these nodes look like. I mean, this is my own opinion. Um, so we're, we're focusing on the other piece. Okay, I think we'll end there. Thanks very much, Gary. If you could join me in welcoming. And uh, welcome to the coalition.